0: Hey folks welcome to the real change anthology on the meta hour podcast my name is lily cushman and i'm the producer for the meta hour in celebration of the paperback book release of real change in november of 2021 we've created an anthology of interviews to explore some themes from the book these interviews originally aired in 2020 with Sharon speaking to various folks about the intersection of mindfulness, loving kindness practice, and social action. We're delighted to reissue these conversations to you now as a new collection of weekly episodes organized into the following themes. Agency in action, grief to resilience, activism as art, anger to courage, the interconnected world, and burnout to balance. For the first episode of the anthology, we're exploring the theme agency in action. This episode features interview clips from Jack Cornfield, Sylvia Borstein, and Young Pueblo. Our first clip is from episode 135 of the Meta Hour featuring Jack Kornfield. Originally, this aired September 28th of 2020. Jack trained as a Buddhist monk in the monasteries of Thailand, India, and Burma. He has taught meditation internationally since 1974, and is one of the key teachers to introduce Buddhist mindfulness practice to the West. He's one of the co-founders of the Insight Meditation Society in Barry Mass along with Sharon and Joseph Goldstein, and he's also the co-founder of the Spirit Rock Meditation Center in Woodacre, California. Jack's books have been translated into 20 languages and sold over a million copies. In this clip, Jack speaks with Sharon about the common misconception that spiritual practice, such as mindfulness or meditation, Do not include social engagement or civic duty. Here's the clip.
1: So I am on your uh, email list, or maybe several of them, and um, I see how much you are urging people to vote, and uh, you're involved in certain elements of that. I watched you on Tara Brock on Win Wisconsin's thing, which I thought was fantastic. And I've just recently gotten an email from you. So I wondered if you could speak a little bit about that, what has drawn you to that, and maybe even the connection to your, your meditation practice in life. With pleasure,
2: you know, and in a way speaking with you because you also have been so much of an activist in these years as I have. The whole notion that somehow meditation is a kind of passive activity is, you know, or mindfulness is, is it's wrong from the very beginning. If you look at the Buddhist teachings of the Eightfold Path, half the steps of the Eightfold Path are contemplative steps, mindfulness and concentration, so forth. Half of them are steps of relationship and engagement, you know, having charitable thoughts to the People around you, and setting your intention, and then right speech, and right action, and right livelihood—they um, go together. And mindfulness, in its the old language in Pali or Sanskrit and so forth, is often this paired word of sati for sati and sampajanya, which, in a loose translation, means mindful presence, in which you see the way things are deeply, and then mindful or suitable response. Like breathing in and breathing out, and from the very beginning, the Buddha, you know, he sat between warring armies as a kind of peace activist at certain points, or the more modern monks who've gone out to wrap their robes around the greatest trees in the forest and make them abbots, and and do a ritual that will prevent the loggers from cutting down the forest. All of those things. So the whole notion that somehow spiritual practice is a withdrawal from the world. Is now getting, I think it's now getting shifted, I hope, in our imagination to realize that we can't separate and that we tend ourselves. And in doing so, we quiet the mind and open the heart. And then that gives us the ability, since we move through the world anyway, to move through the world and bring benefit to it. So now all that is sort of a little background. We are in a really difficult time, as everybody knows, these multiple crises of the pandemic and the racial injustice and the economic crisis and the climate crisis and so we need both we need ways to steady our hearts to quiet the mind and kind of give ourselves roots and strength and so we can live through this in a wise way and then we need to get up and tend and mend the world and and plant the seeds or water them of things that matter. And that's an equally big part of Buddhist teachings is what seeds are you planting and watering and how are you creating a future? And for our future right now, one of the most important and effective things that we can do is to uh, participate in the democratic process of voting. And yes, it's messy. And yes, there's voter suppression. And yes, there's partisanship on all sides and so forth. But I believe that this is an enormously important thing. There's so much polarization and, you know, many things that are being done in our name as a government of us that are actually causing harm to lots of people. So we've started together with a group of 150 Buddhist teachers and an equal number of well-known yoga teachers, uh, something called um, Buddhist and Yogis United. Although if you go online to look, and I hope you do, it's yogins, y-o-g-i-n-s, united. That's the Sanskrit plural, yoginsunited.com. And there you'll find Buddhists and Yogans United. And there's an invitation on it. And we're going to be pumping out information and, and support for all the community members, not just the teachers, but those who meditate and those who do yoga and those who know people who meditate to do three really important things. First is to register to vote and make sure everyone that you know in your pod and your family and that you're close to, make sure everyone is registered. The second, which is on there, is a way to join um, some of the best nonpartisan groups to help get out the vote. And this is, if you click on it, there are ways to send texts, to email people, to call people, to do things that support all these many people who may not be voting otherwise, and whose voices we need. We need everybody's voices um, in this time. And as a collective, we can hope and maybe even pray that that collective wisdom will lead us in a a healthy way. And then the third is, of course, for those who are able to, um, to become poll workers and actually to engage in that. And all three of these seem like some of the most powerful, simple, and strategic things that we as individuals And as a community of people who care about ourselves and the world, because they're not separate about our, about life itself can do. So that's a a little ad for it. And Mm -hmm. if you do it, whoever's listening, I mean, please do it and tell other people and pass it along and make it
1: really come alive. That's fantastic. I mean, I've known, of course, through the years, how much you've worked. Maybe I don't even know the extent of it actually. You know, you've worked with gang members or, you know, people who we don't ordinarily think of as having access to the teachings. And it it takes a a lot of intentionality to uh, be a part of those communities.
0: Our next clip is from episode 131 of the Meta Hour. Featuring Sylvia Borstein, Ph.D. Originally airing August 31st of 2020. Sylvia has been teaching Dharma and Mindfulness Meditation since 1985. She's a founding teacher of the Spirit Rock Meditation Center, a psychotherapist, wife, mother, and grandmother. She's the author of five books, including It's Easier Than You Think, The Buddhist Way to Happiness, and Happiness is an Inside Job, Practicing for a Joyful Life. In this clip, Sylvia speaks about her life as an activist, and how she sees social action as part of her spiritual path. Here's the clip.
1: I guess we live in a time where it's also, it's incumbent upon all of us to notice more, you know, if we have Some degree of balance, then we, I think, can notice more, you know, because we can open to more of the experience of others or even our own experience, see our own assumptions and and so on. So I wanted to ask you also about your life as an activist because I know that's very real. I know you and your daughter are involved in certain initiatives. We talked about voting and things in the past.
3: Yeah, all of the all of the above. You know, I I I. I thought to myself, at some point, I remember teaching that my spiritual practice, whatever you want to say, we could have an hour-long talk on what's a spiritual practice, but my spiritual practice, if someone said, what were you doing in your 20s or 30s as a spiritual practice, spiritual practice at that point was I was an activist. I was the, At one point, I was the chairman of the Marin Women for Peace. And I was marching down major boulevards in the county with uh, uh, make love, not it more, and uh, war is not good for children and other people. And uh, I was very devoted to that, and I still am. Uh, I was the Marin representative. I was a San Francisco representative in the International Women's League for Peace and Freedom. And I went to an international meeting about that. That I all did in my early 30s. Then there were a lot of years from when I was 40 and I uh, met my mindfulness teachers that I spent a lot of time uh, going on retreats. So I was not so much out in the street doing activism. I certainly am proud to say that I have never not voted in an election since I was 21 years old. Every single I vote for dog catcher if they have an election for it. I come from a family of Eastern European refugees who came because they were so dedicated to the idea of in a democracy. everybody votes. We all walked to the polls they didn't have absentee ballots. I went with my parents and my grandparents, and I stood in the voting booth with my mother and watched her vote. Those were all very, very transformative experiences for me. So I have never missed a vote. I've never missed doing things to talk about what I believed in. And there were a lot of years that I wasn't so much an activist, in the street kind of activist, until more recently, until, uh, until after 2000, Jack Cornfield and I were arrested. That was my first arrest. Did you know we got arrested? No, tell me more. We got arrested on the steps of the federal building in San Francisco in 2003, just on the eve of invading Afghanistan, protesting it. And uh, it's a sweet story. There was a, a rally outside a religious meeting on the front steps of the federal building. And people from all the Bay Area religious traditions were there. And most people, who many people, had the uh, clothing that could distinguish them. The Zen people were wearing Zen outfits. The Tibetans were wearing outfits, and the uh, different Christians came with different colors and different outfits and crucifixes. And there were rabbis with a talit over them. It looked like a great assortment of people. Only Jack and I were wearing plain clothing. <laughs> And he said to me at one point in the morning, because people took turns making statements before we sat in and before we got arrested uh but during the the service, people took turns, and they since they're all used to sermonizing and they're really dramatic in the sermonizing people got out, got up, and they really you know moved their arms and sermonized in a loud voice like you do when you deliver a sermon. Then Jack gets up and speaks in a regular tone of voice. And I and I also speak in a regular tone of voice. I have no idea what we both said, probably variations of the theme. But then we heard some other person really doing it. And Jack came over to me and said, that's something we have to learn. So we haven't learned yet how to do that in that kind of a dramatic way. But then at the end of the service, we did the civil disobedience, which, of course, you have to call the papers and the and the news media to tell them so that they'll come and cover it. Otherwise, there's no point to doing a disobedience if there isn't going to be that one. So we sat down and blocked the entrance to the federal building. Donald Rothberg was there. I was there. Jack was there. A couple of other people were there. And a lot of other people were there. And. And. Uh, Uh, The marshals came up out, and they said, uh, you have two minutes to disperse. If you don't disperse, we'll have to arrest you. So we didn't disperse, and um, they arrested us. My grandchildren were extremely proud of me. (laughs) Oh. Because they were watching it on TV. Uh, The local television stations were covering it. And uh, I think it was one of my daughters who said to me, She said, I was very proud of you sitting there with Jack and singing We Shall Overcome or something. And since we were in the first row of people there, I was the first person to stand up. They said, you have to stand up and get handcuffed. And my daughter said, I was watching you, Mom. She said, the whole time he was sitting, I was fine. And then when you got up and I saw my little mother getting handcuffed, (laughs) I started to (laughs) cry. So we were we were incarcerated for maybe two hours, and they took our names and our pictures. It's a great story because when they said, okay, you can go home one by one, never heard from anybody again, they took down our data, but they didn't get in touch with anybody. One of my friends and I, also in this group of clergy, got out right before me and waited for me, and then I got out. We went out one at a time. They took our picture and a federal marshal escorted you out. So they took her picture. They took my picture. And she said, you know, the marshal, as he escorted me out, he said to me, would you mind giving me a blessing? Aww. Oh, isn't that lovely? I love that story. Here we are. We're clergy. And these guys are in the unenviable position of having to arrest clergy. And they don't like doing that. And their people also, you know, it was a really a good
1: moment. Yeah, that's a really great story. So what's the organization you and your daughter were involved in? I know you were going to D.C. for a while.
3: It was, it's the Peace Alliance, and they still operate. And uh, I love it when organizations do not flag in their determination. It started way back, I think, with maybe even before Dennis Kucinich, but it started with an idea that we had war departments and defense departments, and why shouldn't we have a Department of Peace that really occupied itself with things that um, cultivated peace in the world, particularly initiatives like uh, education programs for young men and women who have done something that brought them to the attention of the law to help Reconstruct their lives rather than incarcerate them for some period of time. I lobbied in Washington the last time I was in Washington, and that was very exciting. Um, actually, going into senators and representatives' offices and talking to them—if uh, they'll talk to you—I felt very—I um, felt very good about doing it. So it's, it's like voting. It's you know we actually do still have. The framework of a democracy. I have one other thought that just came into my mind, though, because I thought about it in terms of you think about activism. It's sometimes possible to make it sound like activism is one thing that you do and when you're out in the streets and sitting in and protesting, and that it's different from sitting in a cloistered monastery. And I remember I don't know, 30 years ago at least, maybe 40, reading The Seven-Story Mountain by Thomas Merton and talking about his time in Gethsemane after he had been a monk and was really in there and having that life, that the civil rights movement was really in full swing. And many of his friends from his pre-movement days were honestly on the front lines and going to protests and going down south and registering voters and he spoke to his abbot and he said i don't feel good being here and not doing anything Just sitting and you know meditating and praying and writing but my friends are actually out there doing the real work and he said the abbot said to him you have no idea how much good effect your being here praying is having and i just like that so much When I tell that story to people, they'll say, well, what do you think it means? Why do you like it? it, Do you think it means that his prayers are standing up those other people? Or do you think it means that the other people who know about his devotion to peace and is sequestering himself out of the world are buoyed up by it? Or do you think it means that his prayers are going up and coming down and helping to further the cause of good? And the truth is, I don't know any of the above, but I know that I like that story so much so that when people say I should be out, I should be doing more. And here I am just sitting on my zafu praying and making goodwill intentions for the whole world. I'm not doing anything. And I think, you know, who knows? We are at least changing our own hearts
1: with that. That's fantastic.
0: Our last clip is from episode 132 of The Meta Hour, which features Diego Perez, widely known by his pen name, Young Pueblo. Originally airing on September 7th of 2020, Diego is a meditator, writer, and speaker. His practice of Vipassana meditation, as taught by S. N. Goenka, have given him a deeper understanding of liberation that inspires him to reach hundreds of thousands of people online every month through his writing. He is the author of several books, including Clarity and Connection, released in April of 2021, instantly becoming a New York Times bestseller. In this clip, Diego speaks with Sharon about his history as a young organizer and how that engagement has shaped his creative life and meditation practice. Here's the clip.
1: So you are an artist and an activist. (laughs) And one of the things that kind of helped me in in my working on the book, Real Change, was actually opening up my sense of what an activist was and the, the definitions of what social action weren't. Part of that was based on this conversation with Bell Hooks, where she was sort of recommending that, I think, in a broader way, (laughs) there was some obvious association that so many of us have, you know, that if you're an activist, it means you're marching and you're protesting in total. That's the realm of activism. And and in my conversation with Bell, it sort of came down to what about art, talking about things that dissolve our boundaries and make us look that life differently and be willing to be a different person? What about art? So I wonder if you could talk something about that
4: relationship. Yeah, I love that you bring that up because I sometimes feel this tension within myself because in the, I would say, you know, before I got into my period of drug abuse, I really did a lot of my learning through organizing. Like I was a youth organizer. So it was basically teenagers teaching other teenagers how to organize themselves so that they can change their schools or their city. And this was back in Boston where I was growing up at the time. And I got so much from seeing that you can actually empower each other and make material changes happen. You know, that people with a lot of power, if you put the proper amount of pressure on them, will actually give you what you want. And learning that skill of organizing um, just radically changed my life. But I didn't have any inner tools to help me really deal with myself. So that's how I kind Mm -hmm. of ended up getting lost along the way. So now I definitely feel that with my writing, like the whole idea of Young Pueblo, like I created it so that as a piece of social commentary, so that people can understand that. humanity as a whole, we're very young. If you take all of us as a whole, we can't do these simple things like clean up after ourselves, tell the truth, to be kind to one another, to not hit each other. And, Mm -hmm. you know, these, these simple things that we're taught as children. But I really believe that through this century, you know, we have so many daunting challenges in front of us that it's going to be this massive period of growth. And a lot of that is going to not only come from collective work, you know, because the the actual piece of organizing is so critical and important. I think when people move together in mass movements, that really changes history. But what's going to make that work even stronger is the individual work that we do to like find our own healing tools, to make progress in our development of our personal happiness, of letting go of all the, you know, the past wounds or the heaviness that we're carrying and just figure out a way to, you know, allow more clarity and creativity and joy to really emerge from our minds. In some ways, I'd feel like a, an activist in the past, but right now I'm just focusing on writing, but I definitely see how it's a critical component because we have to be able to imagine things differently and imagine in bigger ways if we're going to actually make tangible material change. So it's interesting shifting my roles you know, as, a, as an active organizer to now being a, a full-time writer and trying to help people imagine that, they can actually heal themselves and that they can then take that healing to better communicate with each other and love each other better
1: Mm. that's wonderful
0: thanks so much for listening the paperback edition of Real Change is available on November 30th, but you can already pre-order a copy right now. If you'd like to continue your exploration of the book, Sharon is hosting an eight-day Real Change Challenge online from December 6th to 13th. This in-depth program features a daily lesson, meditation, call to action, and more. You can register now at Sharon Salzberg Dot com. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, may you be healthy, may you be happy, and may you live with ease.